0: Morning. My name is Trey Russell. I'm the associate pastor here at Four Corners, and it is an honor to be able to bring the word to you today in the place of our pastor Lonnie, uh, who is Lonnie Bell, is on vacation with his family and to be returning soon. So it's an honor to bring the word to you. It's uh, it's actually it's it always seems to be quite a tall task to determine what to preach on in these kinds of situations because I I don't have the luxury like Lonnie does of just looking to the next set of verses. So I literally have to pick something out of the whole Bible and that can be rather daunting. Um, So as I wrestled for a couple of weeks, really, a couple months ago on what I would preach today, uh, the Lord kept constantly turning my attention to the Psalms. Calvin called the Psalms, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. He said that it contained the entire range of human emotion. It's incredibly diverse collection of writings, and it's also rather unique compared to where we have been in Genesis for two years, in a long narrative, and now in Romans for a while, in an epistle. So we need to recognize that as we come to the Psalms today, we're coming to a rather dramatic change of genre. We're going to press pause on our friend Paul for a week and leave behind for a week his, his dense, if I can say so, prose and his linear arguments. And instead, we're going to dive into poetry. A medium that is often, poetry that is often cyclical. It develops thought patterns and it repeats them laces them together with imagery and metaphor, hyperbole, personification. Very different from the the linear writing where we have been with Paul recently. And certainly this is the case with Psalm 46, which will be our text for today that Mike alluded to a minute ago. Psalm 46 has been called the Romans 8 of the Old Testament. One reason why I had Mike read that a minute ago. And As we will see throughout the sermon today, Romans 8 will show up several times. It was said that uh, during difficult times, Luther would sometimes turn to his friend and fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon. He would say, Philip, come, let's sing the 46th. As you may know, Psalm 46 was the inspiration for his most famous hymn. We know it in English as, A mighty fortress is our God. It was the battle hymn of the Reformation, one that we sing frequently here at Four Corners. So, in a way, Psalm 46, at least indirectly, has been influencing Four Corners for quite some time, and I'm delighted today to preach it. So if you would, go ahead and stand and let us read the entire chapter of Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, That God would make his word effective for us this morning. I will say it was interesting as I, uh, once the Lord set this text on my heart, it was crazy how many times Psalm 46 just started to pop up. I don't know if Google was tracking me and they started throwing things my way or what, but my wife even said she started seeing yard signs this week in downtown Noonan with what other than Psalm 46 printed on them. So perhaps that's some confidence that this is what the Lord has for us to hear today. So let's pray to him that it would be effective for us. God, it's such a joy to gather with the people of God, perhaps still not in quite the way we would like, but gathered nonetheless. We pray now that by the power of your spirit you would speak through me from your word to your people, that it would convict where needed, it would lift up where needed, it would soothe where needed. May your word do its work now. Amen. So Psalm 46 fits into the category of what we call the Psalms of Zion. Psalms of Zion exist to praise the city of God. In the Old Testament, the city of God pictures is a picture of the place where God and his people dwell together, and that is represented by Mount Zion. Zion also comes to represent the future hope of God dwelling with his people. So we frequently sing a song here. We will feast in the house of Zion. It has nothing to do with a mountain. It's all about the fact that one day we will feast with God himself. It does not appear that Psalm 46 has any clear historical reference. This is the case with some psalms, right? Psalm 51 we know is written by David after his sin was uncovered. Psalm 18, also written by David after he had a particular deliverance from an enemy. Psalm 46, though, we don't know, has a clear, it doesn't have a clear historical uh, background to it. Some have said it may be reference to that account uh, in 2 Kings 19, if you remember, when uh, Assyria and King Sennacherib are are breathing down the throat of Jerusalem, and in one night the angel of the Lord comes and he slays 185,000 Assyrian enemies and Israel, uh, uh, Jerusalem wakes up the next day and there are but dead bodies. So you can look at some of the themes in Psalm 46. Perhaps that context might make sense. Some have said that this psalm may be referencing the fall of Babylon that Jeremiah looks forward to. Or some have even said that it may be written uh, uh, thinking of the deliverance of Israel when they're caught between the impending uh, army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea and the deliverance there. All of these may be possible, uh, but in the words, uh, the words of one commentator, as the crisis is left unidentified and the psalm ranges far beyond any local situation, there is little to be gained by historical speculation. So we don't have that to go by today. But even without an obvious historical reference, we're not left totally empty handed. We can tell from the psalm that the author is plural. It's many. In fact, the inscription says it was written by the sons of Korah. And we know this because it says that that the Lord is our refuge and strength. It says, we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. So there is a corporate nature to this psalm in the way that it's written. We can also tell that the authors are part of God's people. Listen to how Spurgeon starts one of his sermons on Psalm 46. This psalm is a song for all Israel. It is not every man that can sing this psalm. He must belong to the believing company. He must have God to be his God. And he must, like Israel, have learned the art of prevailing prayer. Or else he cannot sing the song of peace amid commotion and calamity. No man can truly sing this psalm but those who are redeemed from the earth. So, we have in this comment from Spurgeon, him preparing us for the audience that ought to be hearing Psalm 46, and I think he also gets at what is the heart of this psalm with his words, the song of peace. I've titled the sermon this morning, The Peace-Making Lord of Hosts, God of Jacob. I did that because I want the title of the sermon and the way we approach the text to give us a right Orientation as we come to the text. We could have easily titled the sermon today, Have No Fear. We could have called it Confidence in the Midst of Chaos. And all of these things would have been appropriate because those themes are certainly here in the text. But if we had done that, it may have thrown us a little bit off course because we need to see here that this psalm is first and foremost about God. It's teaching us that the nature of God is the grounds for our confidence and the grounds for our peace. And this is not surprising. It's really just what the Bible does, right? The Bible starts with, in the beginning, God. It teaches us first and foremost about who God is. And then working out from that, we see who we are. So I want us to to be cognizant of this orientation as we approach the text to be sure to put our our ever-changing circumstances subject to the never-changing nature of God. So, with this approach to the text, I will go ahead and let you know that my aim today, and I think the aim of Psalm 46, is for you to leave here more stunned with who God is. I'm, I'm not so concerned that you would feel warm and fuzzy the next time you grab your Be Still and Know That I Am God coffee mug. If you have one, that's great. Keep using it. But my main concern is that we would fall on our face in worship after reading Psalm 46 because it is out of that worship that we can, like Spurgeon said, sing the song of peace amid commotion and calamity. It should be no surprise to us that we start with God. We started our service that way this morning with a call to worship. Our first song this morning was about God. should be no surprise to us that the Bible is first and foremost about Him as well. So I mentioned the dominant theme in the psalm seems to be of peace. And that will guide our time and structure our sermon today with these three points. Peace in the groaning of nature. God making peace in the raging of nations. And finally, God making peace among his people. Let's look first at the peace in the groaning of nature. We'll reread verses 1 through 3 here. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. With all this talk of peace, the scene here in verses 2 and 3 is anything but peaceful. My goodness. It's a striking image that the very foundations of the earth are coming undone. On day three of creation. Genesis chapter 1, it says that God gathers the waters into one place as if he's restraining, he's putting a leash on the waters. He tells them how far they may go on the sand, that he makes the dry land rise up out of the water. So on day three, God has has restrained the waters and he has put into order the way that the creation will be will be set. And now in these verses, it seems as if It's coming undone. It's being reversed. Here the earth is rocking on its foundations. The waters are threatening to break loose of the restraints God has put them under. A wild scene here in Psalm 46, 2 and 3. This seems to be what Paul is getting at in Romans 8 when he mentions the creation that is subjected to futility. A creation that is in bondage to corruption. It's groaning In the pains of childbirth, the natural world thrashing against its restraints, threatening to come unglued. I've never experienced an earthquake. At least I have, but not one that I felt at the time. Perhaps you have and you can attest, but I think it's likely that there's a reason that an earthquake of sorts is what's referenced here in these verses. There's something fundamentally different about an earthquake than any other kind of natural disaster or groaning of creation, right? So in a a tornado, you could run to an underground shelter for protection. In a flood, there's higher ground to ascend, if you have time. And in a fire, there's water to put it out. But in an earthquake, there's really no constant, right? Everything we knew is, is unreliable. Everything you thought was stable and safe and protective is no longer that way. So the sense that we have in verses 2 and 3 here is that everything you thought you knew stripped away. No foundation. I don't know if you've ever been seasick before. But what happens when you get back to the dock? It goes away like that, right? I speak from experience a bit. But perhaps this is why, because we know that there is something we have that's firm, something that's secure. But here, not even that is firm and secure. Perpetual seasickness, maybe. I don't know. That sounds awful. Whether or not the authors of the psalm are referring to a physical earthquake or some kind of earthquake tsunami catastrophe is uncertain. But either way, the psalmists here are writing about times when everything we thought was trustworthy and reliable is suddenly untrustworthy and unreliable. Perhaps literally, but at least figuratively, the rocks have become as sand. So this is the situation on the ground in the groaning of nature described in verses 2 and 3. Yet in the middle of this the middle of this insecurity and danger is a rock. He's called our refuge, our strength, our help in trouble. So we thought in an earthquake there's nothing constant, yet here, out of a sea of instability, rises a refuge or a tower so strong, so fortified, so stable that even the splitting apart of the earth and all the undoing of what is natural cannot make it budge. And within this shelter, there is peace. The psalmist elaborates here that not only is the shelter of our God an impenetrable defense, it is also present. It is available for us. This is not like the, the manufactured gods of Rome or Greece that when, when you call on of course, you know they're not real, but when you call on them according to mythology, they may or may not respond. They may be asleep or they may be upset at you. They're fickle in their personality. They have to be appeased. It's not the case with our God. He is present. And when you call on him in the time of trouble, what you realize is he's already there. There's no beckoning for him to come to you. He is already here. He is very present for us in trouble. This is the unchangeable nature of God that Psalm 46 shows us. For his people who are under the effects of a groaning creation. Our response then to that groaning creation is to be grounded in this nature to be grounded in the nature of the refuge, that it is immovable even when everything else is moving. Look at the therefore of verse 2. The nature of God is established in verse 1. Refuge, strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear when we experience the following. So you see how it's the nature of God that grounds us in a position of peace amid chaos. I don't necessarily mean chaos like, like craziness. If you have small kids at home, I'm thinking of like the 30 minutes before bedtime, chaos. I'm not necessarily talking about that, rather uh, the disrupted order of the way things should be. The fact that nature groans, the fact that our relationships crumble, the fact that we had to pray this morning for a brother whose body is deteriorating, Global pandemics bring the world to its knees. And in the midst of these times, Psalm 46 verse 1 is saying that God hides us in himself. He doesn't necessarily take us out of the storm. He doesn't necessarily promise to make it stop. The language here is that though these things are happening, God is still this for us. And so instead, when everything else is shifting beneath our feet, threatening to come undone... He is the constant. He is the rock. Therefore, we will not fear. I want to be a bit careful with this exhortation to not fear. When you hear that, when you read that, don't think, my fear is unfounded. My fear is silly. There's nothing to be afraid of. Therefore, I won't fear. That's not what's happening here in Psalm 46. That kind of reasoning really is simply out of touch with reality. The mountains are falling into the sea. The earth is coming apart. There is much to fear. And if we're honest, we see that the earth is groaning. Romans 8 verse 18 tells us we will suffer in this present time. Consider Revelation 21, verse 4. It speaks of a day when He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So that day is coming. But it's not here yet. So the former things, according to Revelation 21, are still in effect. Death and tears and mourning and crying and pain, more than likely, You know that all too well. So when we hear do not fear, we should be honest about the kind of world we live in. We still live under the effects of sin. The creation still groans. And Romans 8 tells us that we ourselves groan as well, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So what do we do with this exhortation to not fear when we know there are fear-inducing things all around us? Well, the first thing we don't do is we don't just try to preach to ourselves, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. That doesn't work. That kind of self-will determination will do nothing but give you this this, uh, synthetic and thin confidence in yourself, which, of course, I don't need to tell you is no match. Rather, I think it may help us to consider how our hearts operate. I heard this metaphor recently from a pastor and I thought it was really helpful here as to how the heart deals with fear. We often think of the heart in terms of a cup. That cup is full of fear. We need to dump it out and replace it with whatever the opposite of fear is, confidence or trust in the Lord. So get rid of your fear, replace it with no fear. The problem though is that that kind of Treatment of the heart doesn't really respect what we know to be true about reality. The things we just mentioned, the fact that we still live subject to the former things of Revelation 21. It's just not honest to think the heart is a cup. Rather, we can see the heart as a balance. Knowing we are subject to the trials of a groaning creation, we balance them out with the truth of who God is. This is what Calvin says about this comment. When the sacred poet says, We will not fear, he is not to be understood as meaning the minds of the godly are exempt from all solicitude or fear, as if they were destitute of feeling. For there's a great difference between insensibility and the confidence of faith. He only shows that whatever may happen, they are never overwhelmed with terror, but rather gather strength and courage sufficient to allay all fear. So we should expect to be weighed down by trials in life the trials of a groaning world, but as Calvin says, we're not insensible about it. Paul puts it this way, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we balance out the groanings of creation with the strength of the Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob. In other words, we remember who our God is. We draw on his nature as refuge, strength, help. We do not succumb in terror to the chaos, but we rest in him where there is peace. So, the question for you then is for us, where do you seem to run? Where do you turn to when you feel the effects of a groaning creation? perhaps bitten by the harsh words of a good friend, when your understanding or your ability seems painfully inadequate. Anxiety has you confused about which way is up and which way is down. I don't know. Google, come first, maybe. Maybe you attempt to escape reality at the gym or escape reality with hours of just mindless scrolling, thinking you'll get away from it. Maybe, perhaps, even, you choose to drown yourself in sin, turning to pornography or excessive alcohol, numbing yourself to the pain of whatever it is that stares you down today. Friend, I want to show you that the God of Jacob here is your fortress. Psalm 46, 1 is teaching you the nature of God so that when you feel the effects of a fallen world, be they physical, spiritual, financial, emotional, relational, that you run to Him alone where peace is found. Our God is a peacemaker in the groaning of creation. Next, let's see how the Lord of hosts makes peace among the raging nations. Listen to the language of verses 6, 8, and 9. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Sorry, I didn't mention verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verses 8 and 9. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. I want us to recognize here first that uh, the word that it says, that the, what the nations are doing in verse 6, they're raging. It's the same word used for what the waters are doing in verse 3, they're roaring. So you have the nations and the waters raging and roaring. Similarly, in uh, verse 6, what the kingdoms are doing, they're tottering. Totter is the same word used for what the mountains are doing in verse 2, moving. So the kingdoms and the mountains are moving and tottering. I think what this symmetry is meant to tell us is that the same chaos that exists in the groaning of creation is present in the people of the earth. This is what I mentioned earlier as an example of the the cyclical nature of the Psalms. We have the same pattern of thought, chaos and instability. Now it's repeated and applied to a new subject. The people of the earth. So, What is, like last time we looked at the the reality on the ground, what is the reality on the ground? Last time it was the groaning of nature, now it's the raging of nations. We need no one to tell us this is the case. We turn on the news and we see political turmoil, social unrest, abuse of power, acts of lawlessness. None of these things are new and none of them should surprise us. If we're familiar with the word of God, we know the nations have been raging ever since Cain killed Abel, ever since the bitterness that was between Isaac and Ishmael, the strife between Jacob and Esau, ever since Joseph's brothers hated uh, hated him so much they threw him in that pit, the nations have been raging. To be honest, if you really were to consider some of the barbaric savagery that has identified many of the nations throughout the world, we would think that the world we live in is this Disneyland compared to the way some of the nations of the earth have acted. But this is simply the reality of what nations do when left to their own devices. If you've read or listened to Piper's book, uh, Coronavirus and Christ, you've heard this language, that there is rage behind the rage. There's chaos behind the chaos. These dual realities due to the presence of sin in our world. Hearts, meaning we can't help but see the raging of nations and see the raging of sin behind it. The scripture here tells us that not only do the nations rage, but their chaos also gives way to volatility. They have no roots. They have no ballast. Like the mountains in an earthquake, the kingdoms are liable to being toppled. This is the pattern we observe, that evil gives way to Instability. The nations rage, therefore they totter. This is the reality on the ground that we know well. So what is the nature of God that sits over this reality? Well, in verse 1, remember God was presented as a defense, as a shelter against the groans of creation for us. In these verses, however, God is presented as the one on the offensive. He is now making peace, not just for us in the midst of storms, But actively making peace among the nations. Just consider how we see this in the name he is given in the refrain of verses eleven and in verse seven, the Lord of hosts. The title, Lord of Hosts, depicts God's role as warrior fighting for his people both in the cosmic realm against divine forces and in the natural realm in historical events. Host here is carrying the idea of armies or particularly heavenly armies. He's commanding them. And this warrior imagery we we get with this title, Lord of Hosts, is seen clearly in the text. God melting away the raging nations and kingdoms with but his voice ceasing wars, destroying weapons, bringing desolations upon the earth. This is the warrior mentality of God. Perhaps this is one of the references to that account in 2 Kings 19 when the angel of the Lord slays 185,000 of Jerusalem's enemies in one night. But we're meant to see here that the Lord of hosts has authority over the nations. And according to verse 6, He needs but an utterance of his voice to carry it out. So we see the God who creates with but a word has the power to destroy or make peace with but a word. This is the case all throughout scripture that that God exercises his government over the nations of the earth, right? He can bring Egypt to its knees with 10 plagues. He raises up Babylon to enslave Judah as a judgment on them. Then he raises up Persia to overthrow Babylon and release Judah, let them go back to Jerusalem. It's not just that God is, uh, the Bible is not just picturing God as a puppet master, right, who's sort of just passing the time in heaven. Rather, this is God's, ju- God's government of the peoples of the earth. Proverbs 21 tells us that, uh, 21, 1 the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So when we consider the the jurisdiction that God has over the earth, the one who is really in control, there's one application I want to make here. Uh, This is not really the point of the text per se, but I do think given the climate that we are in, we can see this here. When we see the position God takes in the governing of the world, we must know that our hope is not in our nation. Our hope is not in the freedoms we enjoy. Our hope is especially not what happens in November. Let me tell you this, Christian 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is not a refuge or a strength regardless of who lives there. We should be grateful for our country. We should respect her. We should respect her authority. Pray for her leaders. But Psalm 46 is showing us that our hope is in Zion, not in D.C. So our text is showing us the control that God exercises over the nations because He is the peacemaking Lord of hosts. I want to show why and how He brings that peace. Here's two texts. But before we get there, we need to consider the audience, perhaps, of what what, what, what audience the psalmist is talking to in verses 8 through 10. This will help us first before we go to these two texts. Uh, I didn't know this when I came to the psalm, but, but commentators are a bit split over who is the, the audience of verses 8 through 10. So, so one way we might conceive of the audience in these verses, remember this is the part where the psalmist says, come behold the works of the Lord, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations. Some commentators would say the audience here are the people of God, suggesting that this is comfort for the people of God, the, the, the message is relax, God has got this. Similar, you could think of this to what, the, what God says to, uh, to Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 14 when they're about to cross the Red Sea. He says, I will fight for you, you need only to be silent. It's one way we could see this. Another way we could see these verses is that uh, the audience in verses 8 through 10 is not the people of God, but the nations it would be the psalmist calling the nations to behold the works of the Lord and to be silenced before his authority. So in this case, verse 10, I'll read it for you. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In this case, verse 10, the psalmist is quoting God as he says, Hush, Nebuchadnezzar, I am God. Hush, Silence, Sennacherib, be still, Pharaoh, I will be exalted, not you. It seems to me, given the context of the psalm, that peace is in view, that the latter of these two is the best way to take these verses, especially as we consider God making peace among his people and peace among the nations. So with that perspective then, let's get to the the why and the how. How is God making peace and why is God making peace among the nations? First, the why. Why is God hushing the frantic affairs of the nations? Let me read to you Psalm 72, 8 to 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So God makes peace among the nations. The Lord of hosts makes peace among the nations so that he would be worshipped among the nations. And this is what verse 10 is saying when we see it as uh, the, the nations, as the audience. God is saying, peace on you nations, so that I will be exalted among the earth. So that's his reasoning. What about the means? How is he doing it? I love this. This prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, 9 and 10. You'll get this real quick. Just listen. Rejoice, oh greatly! Remember, this, is, this, is the, this is the how he's going to bring peace on the nations. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. You'll get this here. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow, does this sound familiar? The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to sea. To the ends of the earth. The Lord of hosts makes peace among the nations to glorify himself. How? By sending the one who makes peace by the blood of his cross. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him to reconcile to himself all things and all nations, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians chapter 1. So the Lord of hosts will bring peace to the nations through the person of Christ to glorify himself on the earth. So now we've seen God as a fortress, making peace in groaning creation. We've seen the Lord of hosts making peace in the raging nations. Finally this morning, let's go to see how the God of Jacob makes peace among his enemies people read verses 4 and 5 with me there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the most high God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved God will help her when morning dawns when you read the psalm straight through verses 4 and 5 stick out a bit as, as kind of unique Right before, immediately prior to these verses, you have the image of roaring water and toppling mountains. Following verses 4 and 5, you have the image of raging nations and the earth-melting power of God. Yet, right in the middle of the two is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So that's one reason why I've saved it for last, because it sits as a sandwich Between God's peacemaking in nature and his peacemaking in the nations, and in between you have his peacemaking among his people. I want to point out here three ways that God makes peace among his people. In these verses, we see his supply, his station, and his security. First, we'll see his supply. Verse 4 there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God God makes peace here by supplying the people of God against the backdrop of roaring waters and a groaning creation God supplies his people with gentle streams This is consistent with the theme of God's supply in water in particular all throughout scripture In the beginning of the story of the Bible Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. So, in the very beginning, God establishes water in Eden and to supply the garden and its occupants. We see a river as the picture of God's abundant supply to his creation and to his people. Go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So at the end of the Bible, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there is a river proceeding from God. Right in the middle of the Bible, the beginning of Psalm 1, the man or woman of the word is planted by streams of water that yield its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither. John chapter 4, Jesus with the woman at the well, what does he offer to her? Living water, eternally satisfying water. So these are just a few references, many, many more we could look at coming together to build a picture of the blessing and provision which proceed from God to supply his people. This is what our God does. And we see in verse 4, those streams are making glad. They're gladdening the city of God. We have to see the kindness of the Lord in this provision. Not only does he shelter us from the destructive forces of the earth in a defensive way like we saw in verse 1. He's not just holding us steady in neutral, keeping us from falling, but he's going further and he's supplying us with what we need. Not only scarcely supplying us, but apparently abundant supply, enough to gladden the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Which brings us to the station where God dwells. This is the reason, as I mentioned at the beginning, that this psalm belongs among the psalms of Zion. Remember Mount Zion, synonymous with the dwelling place of God. This was actually our call to worship this morning, Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Psalm 76 verse 2 says, His abode has been established in Salem, His dwelling place in Zion. So the city of God here, His holy habitation, Mount Zion, representative of the dwelling place of God. We know in the Old Testament, of course, God dwelled in the Holy of Holies, that that sacred place in the temple behind the curtain only to be accessed but once a year On the Day of Atonement, God dwelled among his people. There's even that awful scene in the book of Ezekiel where the glory of God departs from Israel because of their sin, showing that he was with them, among them, and then he departed from them. But the picture in the Old Testament is that God is with his people in the city of God. This is a repeated refrain in Psalm 46. He is very present verse 1 said. He is in our midst verse 5 says. He is with us verse 7 and verse 11 say. And it's key that we would see here Jesus or we would see God in the midst of his people. It'd be foolish for us to read this psalm and think that the comfort or peace or confidence of this psalm would be for those who reject the city of God. That would make no sense. The only reason the city is well supplied is because God is there. If you are well supplied Christian, the only reason is because you are in Christ. If you happen to be here this morning or listening to this in some other medium and you have not turned from your sins to the living God, I would urge you don't appropriate to yourself the benefits of this psalm if you hate the city of God. Maybe even the Lord is stirring your heart toward him this morning. You don't know of the city of God. You don't know of the peace that God offers through Jesus Christ. I want to tell you to the city of God, the gates are open. If you confess, Paul says this in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Our God is faithful and just to forgive people of their sins because of what has been accomplished by Christ on the cross. This is the gospel that we love. This is the gospel that gives us life as Christians. So, speaking of Christ on the cross, let's turn finally to the security that we see in these verses. We saw the supply God gives to us. We saw the station where God dwells. Now let's see the security. The effect of that supply and that station is that there is security found in God. Verse 5. Because of the nature of God being among his people, she shall not be moved. The psalmist says so in the midst of a groaning creation, in the midst of raging nations, the people of God are secure in the fortress of the God of Jacob. I think the use of that phrase, God of Jacob, in verses 7 and 11, is meant to drive us to consider how the peace-making God among his people is most clearly manifested in his covenant nature. That's where we'll end this morning. We know well from Genesis that God covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel. Ultimately, that was passed on to the Gentiles. We read in Romans 4 through the blessing of Abraham. And we know this covenant has its apex in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's finish looking at how Psalm 46 anticipates the peace of God, or the peace that the God of Jacob secures for his people through the person of Christ. We're still in this last point, peace among his people, and we see how God makes peace among his people through the person of Christ, and that is seen here in Psalm 46 verses 4 and 5. So our minds have been pushed to covenant. We know Christ is the target. He's the centerpiece of that covenant. We know he is Emmanuel, God with us. The repeated refrain of verses 7 and 11. A high point in the Bible, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the presence of The availability of God not ceasing in the Old Testament. But John at least telling us through Jesus Christ, God remains in the midst of his people. We see this verse 5, verse 7 and 11. Jesus, God is in the midst of his people through Christ. So what do those people now constitute? What do those people make up that Christ is in the midst of? 1 Corinthians 3 16, they make up God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in them. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, the people of God grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now, look at this amazing. The people of God who are in Christ. They are the holy habitation of the Most High. The people of God are, is where Christ dwells. We call that the church. Do you know what this is here? Those who have covenanted together, Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and other places dwell us. This is where God dwells. He was in the Holy of Holies before. No longer he is among us. Does that not make you want to lift up and to respect This church, how dare would we think to disrespect the place where God dwells by by grumbling against our brothers and sisters, by grappling for status. How ugly is that kind of thought? We are the place where God dwells. We, brothers and sisters at Four Corners Church, are the holy habitation of the Most High. From Psalm forty-six, four. So, what does God do for His people? What does He do for the church? Well, Romans eight twenty-six tells us He gives us our spirit. He gives us the spirit to help us in our weakness. Second Peter says He has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Titus chapter two says that He showers us with grace to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He gives us grace to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Or, put in the words of Psalm 46, for he supplies us as his people with the river of blessing and provision, proceeding from himself, which makes us glad in him. Do you see how that comes from Christ to us now? finally, The effect of peace that the God of Jacob makes through Jesus Christ, verse 5, is that his people shall not be moved. In the face of a groaning creation and all the ways that can look, in the face of raging nations, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, that is the effect of the fact that the Lord of hosts with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He has sent his son Jesus Christ to make peace by the blood of his cross and therefore you shall not be moved. Perhaps that's a message you need to hear this morning. Maybe you feel the effects of a fallen world Broken relationships, difficult marriages, frustrating finances. I don't know, just a few examples, you fill in the blank. You may feel it physically, you may feel it spiritually, wondering if the grip of the God of Jacob might have loosened a bit on you. If that's you, that's where you find yourself this morning. I assure you, if Romans 8.34 has anything to do with it, if Jesus Christ is not in the grave, you shall not be moved. I hope the covenant nature of God shining through Psalm 46 communicates to you the security and the eternal peace that exists within the city of God because of the work of Christ. Though the mountains tremble and the waters roar and the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He makes peace when we face the effects of a groaning creation. He makes peace among nations that rage and roar so that he will receive glory. And he makes peace within his people by the blood of his son, and he holds them there fast for eternity. For us as Christians to live under these realities, to put in the words of Paul in Ephesians, this is how we preach to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. When we have faith in the fortress, when we trust the strength of the Lord of hosts, when we hope in the covenant God of Jacob. That is how we as the church make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is the clear reality of Psalm 46. The question for you, the question for me, the final question for us is, Christian, what will you do with the word of God? God has secured for you peace in the person of Christ and He has secured for you to walk in that peace. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You tell me how he won't. He gave up his son. You really think he's going to withhold anything from you? No. So I pray today in closing that Psalm 46 would help us to see the nature of Of God. And I pray that you would lean into the peace of the Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your word. We desire to sit under it. I pray, God, that as this word goes out among the people of Four Corners Church and perhaps beyond, that you would use it to be effective for gladdening your people. If it's a fire, God, I pray that you would use it to warm where necessary, and use it to scold where necessary. Use it to convict where needed, perhaps, the heart that knows nothing of the city of God. And for those of us that are within that city, may we trust the peace-making Lord of hosts, God of Jacob. We thank you for this time to hear from your word. We pray that it will be fruitful for us now. Amen.